I'm doing pretty good, Coop. I'm doing pretty good. Well, I'm doing pretty good too, Scott. Thanks for asking. Hey, hey, man. How you doing, buddy? Well, I'm doing pretty good, Scott. Thanks for asking. I just, you know, just checking in. Yeah, well, thanks for checking in. Ladies and gentlemen, we usually do a little bantering before we start each show. I mean, typically. But today we have a lot to cover. and There's a lot more that we don't even know about yet until the end of the show. Right, I mean, so there's like, we got this roller coaster going on. You never really know where it's going to end up. It's full of possibilities. Yeah, so I think we should just crawl right into the liquefaction of government meat and potatoes. That is today's episode. Well, come on, Coop. Now we're just being spoiled. Well, you can thank Wayne Dale for that. And don't worry, folks. We will get to the internationally popular trade portray in a bit so keep your pantaloons nice and tight yep you can unfurl your fists put your hair back up in a bun and just don't worry that's right and to all the male listeners out there you can put those pigtails back into place (laughs) yes yes well let's dive into this wet mess on September 11th, 1995, a 48-year-old woman named Juanita Hoyt was sentenced to 75 years to life in prison by Judge Vincent Squaglia for the murder of her five children between the years of 1965 and 1971. She claimed her children had all died from sudden infant death syndrome. And as the old saying goes, And she would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling prosecutors. Juanita Hoyt had gotten away with it for quite a while. But a quick side note on Squaglia. As a sitting judge in New York, and at one time the sole gun licensor of the area, he approved his own gun license in 2005, which isn't necessarily legal, but eh, not a big deal, right? I mean, uh, sort of is a big deal, though. I mean, we can't just, like, prescribe our own medicine and write our own tickets. I mean, there'd be anarchy, (laughs) man. That's crazy. And at a later date, in January of 2010, he discharged one of his 17 firearms in his chambers at the courthouse, later giving the classic excuse. Oh, that he was cleaning it? Exactly. Everybody always says that. No yeah. surprise. Yeah. The weapon was a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson handgun. Again, eh, not a big deal, right? No, that's a much bigger deal, actually. Is it, though? And that should have been greatly concerning. Because for this behavior with guns, more specifically his recklessness with them, he was allowed to continue being a judge until he retired at the age of 70, which is, or was, the mandatory retirement age. Well, I think that has more to do with the rampant corruption that has completely flooded both the criminal justice system and the government that runs it more than it does with, what's his name? Squaglia? Yeah, yeah. Than it does with Squaglia's inept behavior with firearms. I think you're absolutely correct, but Scott... There is another cause of death among infants up to the age of 12 months, and there's no real mystery as to what it is or how it happens. What? Oh, really? Yes. It's called Moira. Oh, snap. But before we go any further, let's do that thing we always do. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot. (laughs) No, not that. What are you doing? Honking horns and shit. (laughs) Oh, sorry, I was... Thought we were getting ready for the clown parade. No, we're not. Oh, I got the got the wrong day on that. We're, Sorry, we're not doing horns. What the hell, man? <laughs> I don't know, man. We're doing tray per tray, dude. Oh, right. Yes, good old tray per tray. Yeah, it's it's time for tray per tray. I almost forgot. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment has come that you've all been sweating bullets waiting for. Tray for tray. <laughs> Yeah, we got to work now, are on we band down a couple are we down a couple more band members? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're missing the bass and uh, the keys and 
Sacks and yeah, well, you know, I forgot to pay. That's him, what so happens. That's, really, that's what happens when you don't get paid. It's not really their fault. But anyways, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Trey Portray. Now, as we all know, Trump was charged recently with four federal offenses related to the 2020 election and the ridiculous mess at the Capitol on January 6th. Everyone is still talking about it. It's a huge event, first of its kind, and that is why we need to cover it as it plays out because it's like a real-life sitcom, if you will, with brief moments of excitement and hopefully some peanuts. Oh, yeah. But we thought we should just, you know, just talk a little bit about the indictments and kind of catch you guys up on it and the charges against him along with his uh, actually six co-conspirators i'm not sure if you're aware of how many there have been so uh anyways first there are four federal charges right related to the 2020 election the first being conspiracy to defraud the united states the second being conspiracy against the rights of citizens the third being obstructing an official proceeding and the last one is conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding yeah and i don't think a lot of people are aware that there are 78 criminal charges against the 45th president of the united states old teflon don and on top of those 78 criminal charges he's got dozens of lawsuits against him from private individuals for all sorts of allegations and from various businesses that he's been involved with and apparently screwed over in some way or the other but yeah the 77 year old ex-president is the first president to be charged in the federal court and this entire sitcom is going to play out in front of all of us while at the same time setting a new precedent in american politics i mean whether whether or not you care about politics and kind of what's going on just the fact that this is actually happening is insane yeah and i, I mean i hate politics but this is playing out like a sitcom and it's hella boring but just the fact that it's happening to trump makes it worth the watch i mean most of this guy's life has been televised already. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess it's uh, no different than what we're used to seeing. And it's pretty bizarre just in general. But you know what? Trump may actually be the first ex-president to be federally charged. So, I mean, you know, this is this is new for everyone. Uh, but did you actually know that Ulysses S. Grant was the first president of the U.S. to be arrested? No. What the hell did he do? Yeah, it happened in 1872, so I guess the 18th president was speeding in his horse-powered wagon through Washington, D.C. Slow it down. Get, get this, man. He was pulled over by William West, an African-American police officer who used to be a slave. So when the Civil War happened, he joined in the action because what's better, being a slave or having a chance to be free but possibly dying a horrible and brutal death? So when the North won, he became a cop. Yeah, I think I would definitely jump in the action. I would and... choose that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, that's pretty awesome, man. Shout out to the descendants of William West. Well, yeah. So he kept seeing Ulysses S. Grant, who was the sitting president at the time, speeding up and down the bumpy dirt roads. And after pulling him over multiple times, the time came for him to appear in court on the matter. But Uncle Sam, old Ulysses, also known as Unconditional Surrender, never showed up for his court date. So by law, an arrest warrant was issued. I guess this happened back in the day as well. And by law, he had to be arrested, and so it was. I guess he was also a wonderful drunk. Yeah, that's what they say. Can't say the same for myself, but... <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Trump got himself the four federal charges for the election. Shit. And he's also got himself another 40 federal charges for the classified documents case, so that's going to be quite a process. And now, have you heard this? The recording of him with the classified documents? Oh, yeah, of course. It's fucking comedic. Yeah. So there's this recording of him with his buddies and his administration, and they're sitting around with Trump. And he's literally telling them that he's got all these very highly classified documents, which are right there with him, boxes of these documents. And he's pulling them out, and he's like, hey, hey, guys, look, hey, check this above top secret document out. This one right here is super highly classified. Nobody is supposed to see this, not even me, because I'm not the president anymore. But hey, see this? Read that one. 
Yeah, check this one out right here. Take this one right here. Yeah, pass that around to everyone. Check this out. Yeah, the military gave me this one. It's super secret stuff. We got some really cool stuff here. Oh, but take this one here. Look at that. See how classified this stuff is? Really fantastic. Go ahead. Pass those around. Let everyone see these. These are great. These ones too right here. Feel free. Take some photos, actually. Actually, can we make some photocopies of these? I could actually sign, you know, if you want my autograph. This is historic classified stuff. How does that sound? Yeah, everybody, hey, you take one. You you take one too. Yeah, take that one home to your family. Yeah, just make photocopies. Pass them all out to everybody. <laughs> Why not? That's flyer, you know, just flyer it all over. Fuck, man. It's pretty crazy, dude. The special counsel is wetting their grundies over this stuff. It's too easy. It's too easy. But along with those 44 federal charges, there's also 34 state charges in addition. And these are all related to falsifying business records. Again, fun stuff, man. They are picking this guy apart. Well, I guess we'll sit back, keep our eyes peeled, and watch this Lifetime original drama unfold. Indeed. I'm sure it'll be a wonderful smokescreen to divert our attention from other important deals that are happening right now. Right as we speak, probably. And what are those? I don't know, man. I can't see past the smokescreen. It's just like (laughs) a big void in there. Ah. Dark space, dark matter. Yeah. All I see is Ukraine... Russia, UAPs, and a bunch of dysphoria. I see it. Anyways, this second story comes to us from Fox19.com. Apparently, a father lined his sons up. This is very serious. Executed them with a rifle in cold blood. Have you heard about this? That is fucked. No, bro. What is this? Yeah, so this was published June 16th of this year, and apparently it was out of Claremont County, Ohio. A man named Chad Dorman is charged with killing all three of his sons, aged three, four, and seven, he lined them up in the yard and shot them with his rifle. Absolutely terrible. What the fuck, man? Apparently, there was a $20 million bond Damn. set for him at the time. He was 32 years old. The judge, or the county prosecutor himself, said this is by far, quote, this is by far the most sickening, horrifying crime I have wow. ever seen. Yeah. Which, I mean, it is. By all rights, that's absolutely terrible. His father just lines his three sons up and literally executes them in his backyard? Apparently, he even confessed to planning, planning, uh, and carrying out the deaths of the victims. What? For several months. Yes. So you could see uh, a stream back going months before, prior to the actual incident itself, where he was just getting ready, preparing, buying things, just like, get Yeah. Just so, I mean, this is not like some snap decision. Like he thought about this and then executed it much later. And apparently, uh, I'm reading this article here. It says the children's mother called 911 and screamed her babies had been shot. Yeah. And it looks like a separate caller drove by the shooting and they saw a young girl running down the road warning that her father was killing everyone. Yep. Yep. Well, apparently, deputies who arrived at the scene found three young boys unresponsive on the ground as soon as they got there, and all attempted life-saving measures failed. Um, all, all three children, of course, succumbed to their injuries. The sheriff's office released all this information after the fact. The boy's father was literally just sitting on a step outside the house, and he just went quietly with everybody, which is just totally weird. You know? What the fuck? So he killed the sons and just sat there and waited for the cops? Exactly. He, apparently he was detained without incident. There was no fight. There was no argument. There was no nothing. He just went right with them. No sign of forced entry. There were no other suspects. It's just like he snapped. Except for he didn't. 
except he didn't snap. So I, I amend that former statement because he had been planning this for a long time. There's no motive. We have a motive for this. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest question, right? Like what caused this? What was, what was his motive? Yeah. Well, there's nothing about a motive yet, but as the case shakes out, we'll have to keep an eye on it and just kind of see like what other details might emerge that could give us some reason for yeah that heinous act. It's crazy. That's horrible. I can't imagine parents doing this, man. That's so fucked up. It's it's interesting you say that, Coop, because our last story, which is out of www.localsyr.com, is about a mother named Joan Stearns, apparently aged 58, who stabbed all three of her children. No, what the fuck is going on? Now, thankfully, the three of them have been released from the hospital, so there were no deaths, which is nice, which is good. It's rare, I feel like. Um, And this is out of New York. Uh, apparently two teen sisters and a brother were taken to the hospital after being stabbed by their mother in the town of Pompeii. Now the mother stabbed the children and uh, then apparently attempting to kill them and then shot and killed herself. Jesus. So the story just got darker. At least they survived. But I mean, now they have to live with the memory of their mom, not only stabbing them, but then killing herself afterwards. Yeah. But can you imagine being a child? I don't, does it say the ages of these children? Um, they're it's, teenagers, yeah, it right? says that they're teens, and then one of them is younger than a teen. Man, the tra- the trauma that you would have oh, living dude, through that. Like, my it's mom so stabbed insane. me, and my siblings trying to kill us, and then she shot herself like that. I feel really bad for these kids, man. Exactly, exactly. Apparently, one of the teens ran to the neighbors asking for help, and then the sheriff's office arrived. There were deputies outside. They wanted to get her out of there. Um, They couldn't make contact with her, so then SWAT members had to force an entry into the residence, and they found her dead with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Man, what's in the water? Yeah, right, exactly. Apparently, uh, there's still an open investigation into this case, probably just to see, like, you know, history of mental illness or what's going on there. And all three children currently are in their father's care and alive and well, thankfully. Wow. Well, that's thanks for all that violence for the Trey Portray. It's amazing. <laughs> well, you know what, man? <laughs> we, uh, we report on the crazy, the fucked up. And those are all crazy and fucked up stories. Absolutely. We're not here to talk about unicorns and fucking mud pies, so. Exactly. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And that is the end of our trade portrait. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, made sure to pay the singer. Yeah, we're (laughs) going to get that music trademarked (laughs) very soon. Exactly. Well. So in the 1960s, sudden infant death syndrome was said to be the cause of more than 10,000 infant deaths per year. Later, in the 1970s, it started to be theorized that some of the SIDS cases, or crib death, as it was commonly referred to in its early days, were actually the result of botulism poisoning. Oh, good old botulism. That is a good time right there. Oh, yeah. Some of the best of times. Oh, yeah. It was in the 1960s, though, when SIDS was suddenly a major issue due to just how common it was becoming. So common, in fact, that two international conferences were held to focus directly on the issues causing the phenomena and looking for ways to mediate the risks involved. This focus brought about a world-changing campaign based upon an Australian publication called Reduce the Risk Back to Sleep. The campaign was aimed to educate parents on how to properly allow or put their infant children to sleep. 
and ultimately, it was touted as being a massive success. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, has since been changed to SWIDS and stands for Sudden Unexplained Infant Death Syndrome. The disease generally accounts for the unexplained death of a young child, typically younger than 12 months old. For today's show, we're just going to call it SIDS. Yeah, it's easier to listen to. Yeah. The diagnosis of SIDS can be made if the death of the child still remains unexplained even after all the formalities, such as an investigation of the scene, a review of medical history, and an autopsy. It's a mysterious diagnosis, but one that has its place in the medical textbooks. According to the CDC, about 3,400 babies in the United States die of SIDS every year. The experts say that despite a declining rate of SIDS in the U.S., there are still just about 40 deaths per 100,000. That might sound like a lot, but take into consideration that, you know, for example, in the year of 1990, the rate of SIDS was about 130 deaths per 100,000. So over three times as many as it is now. Yeah, it's a lot. But we also need to take into consideration that anywhere between 5 and 15% of those were actually cases of murder, both intentional and unintentional. But the thing about SIDS is that the expert white coats, those being the healthcare providers. Yes. Well, they haven't been able to narrow down a specific cause of SIDS, but they have been able to link a few risk factors to it. At least they think they have. They say they have. Yeah. And uh, why don't we tell the listeners what those are? So the, the Mayo Clinic separates these risk factors into physical, sleep environment, maternal, and some other factors that apparently aren't too relevant. Okay. For physical, the white coats say that brain defects are among the highest factors associated with the risk of SIDS. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. Makes sense. Can't control that. Right. And they've made that link between the two, so that's good. But some other physical factors are things like a low birth weight hmm. or respiratory infection or premature births or even multiple births, hmm. which would just be absolutely fucking horrifying to experience no matter which side you're on. Absolutely. I'm not even sure which side I'd want to be on, to be honest. The experts say that, for example, a premature baby might not have a well enough developed brain, and therefore it might not be able to regulate its own breathing or heart rate. Okay. Yep, I'm following you. As for the sleep environment and its link to SIDS, they say that there are several risk factors that could put a baby in harm's way. An example of this is the position that the baby may be sleeping in. And as we all should know, putting a baby on their stomach or side can often make the breathing more difficult when they are in their infant stages. Other risks here would be bed sharing. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I have a new business idea. I know how it's going to sound, but just hear me out for a second. <laughs> All right, man. Sweet. What is it? So you know how there's rideshare, right? Yeah. And like Airbnb. You've heard sure. of that? Of course, yeah. All right. So, okay. Bed share. Huh? Huh? What do you think? Bed share. Huh? Um, okay, so I have a good feeling that I know, but how does this work? Well, let me explain. So it works just the same, you know, kind of like the others. You just rent a bed. Just the bed. Just the bed. That's it. Yeah. No bathroom or shower? No. No checking now to see what's in the refrigerator? No. No doing your laundry? No. Just the bed? Just the bed. Bed share. I don't know, man. I mean, I'll back you up on the idea, but... Oh, sweet, bro. Yeah, but uh, not financially. Well, fuck. Well, how am I supposed to do this, man? I, I don't got no money. Talk to fucking Wayne Dale, bro. All right. Money bags over here. Sorry, but... I'm trying to save up for a visit to the theater that 
Paul Rubens used to go to. Hey, that's understandable, man. Yeah. Shout out to the late Pee Wee Herman, by the way. Yep. Strange dude. He wasn't treated fairly. I'm going to come out and say that. If anybody hasn't looked into the history of Pee Wee Herman and exactly what went down, check it out because it might change your opinion. But yeah, he was he was an odd dude there for a while. One of the oddest. So anyway, there's bed sharing and not your business venture bed sharing, but like parent and infant bed sharing. And there are certain soft surfaces that may also be linked with higher risk of SIDS. I could see that. And according to the Mayo Clinic, if a mother is under the age of 20, there is an increased risk. Sure, sure. And if the mother smokes cigarettes. Well, yeah. And I like how they only say cigarettes outside of like drugs and alcohol. Right, right. So all the mothers out there, just don't smoke cigarettes and you and your babies will be fine. Everything else, uh, you know. Free game. But uh, other than that, just having inadequate prenatal care and being neglected, which, you know, obviously greatly increases the risk of sudden infant death syndrome. So I'm looking at the CDC website right now, just doing a little research, and I'm checking out which state has the highest rate of SIDS. And all right, take a guess. Which one is it? Um, well, okay. First, I'll, like to, I'll, I'll admit right now, I do not know the answer to this. So I'll say Alabama. No, Kentucky. Seriously? I was. Are you sure you didn't look at this? I'm serious, man. I actually did not look at whatever you're looking at. Well, whether you did or didn't, yeah, you're still wrong. Nah. <laughs> Sorry, I had to build you, build you up there. But, I mean, you were close, honestly. Oh, nah, man. Well, I will try harder next time. I promise. Yeah. Well, it's about time. Probably should. But actually, the state is Mississippi, believe it or not. Ah. And I'm looking at a chart that shows the rates of SIDS between 2016 and 2020 in the U.S., by the way. But, uh, yeah, Mississippi has about 188 deaths per 100,000. Holy fuck. After that, it's Alabama at about 175 per 100,000. And after that, it's Arkansas, which is coming in third with 161 per 100,000. That's a lot of dead babies. Uh, yeah, that is unfortunately a lot of dead babies. Well, recently, Scott, there was a study, a new study, and it was published in the Journal of Neuropathology and Experimental Neurology. Okay. Quite the uh, title for a journal, right? Yeah, damn. The study found that the cause of death may be due to an abnormality in the brain receptor that is involved in the body's protective response to grasp for air. This specific receptor binds to serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that is involved in many processes, including regulating mood, sleep, appetite, and blood clotting. And the team conducting the study used 58 babies who died by suspected SIDS and another 12 babies that had died by other ways. And they found that the receptor abnormality could be interrupting what would normally be a waking and breathing process. Interesting. That's that's just a tough one because you're, it's just luck of the draw. You get what you get. You know, a lot of people have faulty receptors and different ways. A classic example, it's being theorized as ADHD, for example. And, you know, that can have a lot to do with your D4 dopamine receptor which can regulate all kinds of things, you know, in a overarching way, like um, hyperactivity, for example. You don't get to pick and choose. You just get what you get. That's right. And if you're a kid, you don't get to pick and choose which medication you got. You get Ritalin. Only Ritalin. <laughs> you get Ritalin, yeah. You get <laughs> shot up with Ritalin in the ass. Yeah. I don't know if they were doing that right. I should, I should, uh, I should ask the doc about that. You know, this. I feel like the study is somewhat limited being that it don't, they only used 58 babies who died by suspected SIDS and another 12 that had died by other ways. I feel like that's very limited. Yeah, the yeah. scope 
the scope definitely seems yeah. flawed. But hey, they're the experts, not mm-hmm. us, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's probably just a couple of people trying to get through their PhD. Yep. You know? Yeah. So Juanita Hoyt was born Juanita Ethel Nixon on May 13th, 1946 in Richford, New York. She was the sixth of eight children born to Arthur Nixon, who worked as a laborer, and his wife, Dorothy, who was a seamstress, and I cannot vouch for her work. (laughs) Wow, that makes Juanita a Taurus, actually, and that means she liked to be surrounded by soft, soothing sounds. Tauruses, for those of you who don't know, like comfort and luxury. They also like pleasure and like to be pampered. They're also ambitious, focused, and resilient. They have a loyal nature and enjoy relatability and reliability. What they see as dedications, others see as stubbornness. Now, let's see if those characteristics hold up for old Juanita to make better decisions. Um, well, Juanita wasn't really ambitious or focused or resilient with getting a bare minimum education and all. She didn't seem too loyal or reliable, and uh, the only dedication she seemed to have was to murder her own children. Oh, man. Yeah, well... Some people pick something and stick to it, unfortunately. At around the age of 16 or 17 in the 10th grade, Juanita decided to drop out and marry her high school sweetheart, Tim Hoyt, one of the eight Hoyt children. Tim was born on July 16, 1942, to parents George and Ella Hoyt. Ella was a resolute homemaker, while George worked at the Endicott Johnson Shoe Company, where he was employed for 42 years. The company began in 1899 and employed over 20,000 people. It was a prosperous company in New York, pumping out 52 million pairs of shoes. Today, it is called EJ Footwear, LLC. Oh, shit. You know what else is happening on July 16th and 17th of 1942? What's that? Velodrome d'Hiver. It was the largest French roundup and deportation of Jews during the Holocaust. Oof, man. Apparently, more than 13,000 Jews were detained in Paris on that day and deported to concentration camps, particularly the one in Drancy, France, and the Velodrome d'Hiver Stadium, which was converted into like a sort of camp on the banks of the Seine River. For these And from these camps, it's said that they were shipped by train to Auschwitz and other notable death camps to be murdered. And of more than 13,000, more than 4,000 were children, which is terrible. The fucking French did that? Yeah, but the French were fighting against the Germans, up until the loss of the 1940 Battle of France. At that point, the authoritarian regime, Vichy, France, was said to willingly collaborate with German forces after that point. So, yeah, things kind of took a turn. Damn. Thousands were tricked after receiving a summons in the mail, and when they went to where the summons told them to go, they were promptly arrested and sent off. Many others were simply just arrested at their homes. Fucked up. One of the larger opponents of this systematic nightmare, of course, was the Roman Catholic Church, who wanted to save children for themselves. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, sorry. I wanted to say that's a joke. Terrible. But unfortunately, there is some truth to it. But that's a whole nother podcast. Man, I had no idea about that part of World War Two France. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, man, there's just like a lot that the history books leave out because it's not very convenient for the image of certain countries. True. They just want to hang it all on one country. Yeah, you know? man. Well, I mean, that's why we do this podcast, people, getting the information out there so that knowledge can be spread far and wide, unlike the public education system. Yes, we like to disseminate information and spread things both far and <laughs> wide. Huh? Huh? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yep, yep. <laughs> Well, the young Hoyt couple managed to get by somehow, living a modest life on the farming community in Newark Valley, about 70 miles south of Syracuse. 
Juanita herself was one of those extremely popular homemakers of the times, and Tim worked as a security guard at Cornell University at the Art Museum in Ithaca. And he worked there for many years until he would later basically become a stay-at-home dad for what little stretch of time he was able to enjoy it. Juanita and Tim Hoyt were considered to be a quiet, unassuming couple who just did their own thing and weren't interested in what everyone else was doing. Those are the best kinds of couples. Yeah, they are. She met Tim in the ninth grade while both were riding along the pothole-filled streets of Richford, New York in a school bus. And it was right then and there that she knew. She knew. She knew, man. She knew it the whole time. She knew it all along. Juanita and Tim knew they loved each other when they awkwardly stared at each other from afar on nearly the opposite ends of the school bus for what seemed like an eternity. In fact, they stared at each other like this for at least 26 minutes, Tim's head completely twisted around backward, both never exchanging any word, never changing their (laughs) facial expression, never (laughs) blinking. The only thing happening was a lot of lip-licking and subconscious kegels. A lot of rocking up. Oh, you know yeah. I mean, just getting rocked. It's, yeah, this is all on video. Right? It's all on no. recorded That's surveillance camera. That's how we know. And so it would be. The two lovebirds began exclusively dating, and after two long years of said dating, and at the age of 17, Juanita would make a pivotal decision. She found it decisively vital that she promptly drop out of high school to marry the love of her life, Tim Hoyt, four years her senior. Yes, because why wait? And actually, it was this exact situation between Juanita and Tim, the impetus, the afflatus, if you will, and the inspiration of that famed candy bar slogan that I will not call out by name simply because they aren't paying us to do so. But when they do, we will begin calling them by name left and right whenever we can get a moment to breathe when we're not biting a pillow out of either pain or pleasure. Yeah, right. Or both. (laughs) Both simultaneously. Within nine months of dropping out of school, Juanita was impregnated, and she <laughs> yes, would just yes. as soon give birth to their first child, a boy named Eric. Eric Hoyt was born on October 17, 1964, and the young couple seemed to be elated over the fact that they were now the proud parents of a little baby boy. But only 101 days later, on January 26, 1965, little baby Eric would tragically die. Juanita had ran outside their unassuming house, screaming and hollering. Finally, a neighbor swiftly arrived at the scene and attempted to do CPR on little baby Eric, but it was too late. He was dead. The doctors could find no signs of the cause of death, and seeing that infants were dying left and right without showing any definite signs of the cause of death, they simply chalked it up to another statistic of the growing phenomena that was beginning to really gain attention, sudden infant death syndrome. As for little Eric's death, the doctors would say that the infant had simply stopped breathing while he was sleeping. That's horrifying to know that that can just happen, though. Like, seriously, how tragic would that be? It's too tragic. I couldn't imagine. I actually have a family member who she's married. She was married to this guy, and she woke up one morning, and he was just dead, died in his sleep next to her. Yeah. Just gives me the chills, dude. I know, man. But the young couple was heartbroken at the loss, but this did not stop them from trying again. The next year, 1966, Juanita would give birth to another boy, James Hoyt, on May 31st. James would actually be the longest surviving child of the Hoyts, living to the ripe age of about 28 months. The others only living to be younger than only six months old. Disturbing trend we got going on here. While little James Hoyt was still alive, Juanita and Tim would bring another child into the world. This time, it was a girl. 
They would name her Julie, and she was born on July 19th, 1968. By September 5th of the same year, not even a full two months later, something like seven weeks, Julie would be deceased. Juanita had ran outside the house and flagged down a passing motorist for help, but he was unable to do anything. She had later told the doctors that Julie had choked on rice cereal that she was drinking out of a bottle. Fuck, man. And shockingly, just two or three weeks later, little James Hoyt, the longest surviving child at about two and a half years old, would also be deceased. Unfortunately, the doctor who examined his body was not familiar with pediatric autopsies, and he listed the cause of death as adrenal failure, which is a debilitating disease. But it's a disease that generally shows signs and symptoms, symptoms that James never had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you would see like some organs shutting down or elevated levels or something, you know, and none of this was suspicious to anybody. Like this has to be suspicious to someone, right? Like somebody is sitting around going, wow, that's the third kid. Like there's just no way, you know, like wasn't anyone looking into these three deaths and wondering what the hell's happening? I mean, not really, man. There there were probably a handful of people that had their suspicions, but there was no direct evidence to say that the children had died from anything but SIDS. It's really interesting how it all played out, though, and how Juanita used the public sentiment in her favor, because there were a lot of young children dying during that time period, and there was no obvious explanation. And so the public felt nothing but pity for the young couple who seemed to be cursed. Yeah, well, that does happen. At the funeral for James... Juanita was seen being overcome with grief as her tiny son's coffin was lowered into the damp ground. She was hysterical, crying, and collapsing all over the place. Yeah, I could see her blindly bumbling around, you know, arms flailing like on those inflatable men that used car lots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, running into stacks of folded up chairs. Now the chairs are all over the place, making it a risky situation. And, oh, there, there she goes again, trying to do a somersault, but instead she goes face first into the edge of the food table, <laughs> knocking herself out. And you know she ain't wearing no underwear either under the oh. skirts. Now she's just laying there like a bony-eared ass fish out of the water. And yes, that is a real fish, actually. <laughs> bony-eared ass fish. Fuck, that's quite the scene, man. Yeah, she gets crazy sometimes. Like, she's always crazy AF, oh, yeah. but that's just static background crazy. But then <laughs> she really gets crazy crazy at times. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, bro. Have you seen a mola mola? It's also called the Ocean Sunfish. Have you seen one of those things? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen one of them. It's fucking weird looking, but, uh, huh? I haven't actually like seen one in real life. What the fuck is that thing? Yeah, like how did that happen? Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen a Mola Mola, just duck, duck, go that shit or start page or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, it also didn't help the situation for the whole town to know about Juanita's personal life in regard to her own extended family, which was difficult and traumatic as well. One of her brothers had some hip degeneration and was disabled. Another brother had some form of cancer. One of her sisters was suffering from a brain tumor, and another sister suffered from multiple sclerosis and was immobile from the waist down. And that sister was actually married to Tim Hoyt's uh, brother. Oh, what a weird. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff was more common back then. Like families would like stick together like way too closely. Yeah. Marry into each other. Brothers and sisters yep. and shit. Yep. Juanita herself was well liked around town, as was Tim. And she was seen as being very generous and being kind hearted. She regularly crocheted Afghans and either sold them or gave them to friends and neighbors. The people of Richford, New York, had only sympathy for the couple. Whatever suspicions were floating around the potlucks, well, it was all kept private. It wouldn't be until roughly around 1985, about 20 years after the first murder, and after two more children of Juanitas would die, that law enforcement finally decided to take a closer look. And keep in mind, 
The time span of Juanita's murders began in 1965 and ended in 1971, just about a six-year period. It took them a little while to catch on, but at least they caught on eventually. And it was after the tragic death of Julie, their third child, that the couple would be introduced to a real piece of work, Dr. Alfred Steinschneider, who was a medical researcher based in Syracuse, New York, and who was researching the causes of sudden infant death syndrome. He would also be one of the founders and president of the American SIDS Institute based in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Stein Schneider believed that SIDS could be genetic. He believed that this would explain how a single couple could experience multiple deaths of their infant children. The focus of this genetic predisposition that Dr. Stein Schneider was looking into was sleep apnea. For those who don't know, sleep apnea is a potentially serious sleep disorder where breathing repeatedly stops and starts. Symptoms include loud snoring, and they say if you're a loud snorer, you should go get that checked, but other symptoms include gasping for air during sleep, waking with a dry mouth, morning headaches, difficulty staying asleep, or insomnia. Also, excessive daytime sleepiness or hypersomnia, difficulty paying attention, and irritability. Please, for the love of Marduk, go get your snoring checked out. Nobody likes having to hear that shit. But what's more important here is that there is a specific sleep apnea which only affects children. It's called pediatric obstructive sleep apnea. The main difference between the child and adult sleep apneas is that adults are more likely to develop daytime sleepiness, whereas the children are more likely to develop behavioral problems. We need to nip this problem at the source. What if, now just what if, the white coats try to shake it out of them? Right? Shake the apnea just right on out. Well, what do you think about that? Well, actually, the experts today believe that a very large portion of SIDS cases back in those days were actually just that. Women shaking their children to death and then blaming it on SIDS or SWIDS. But I think we have better forensics today to check all that sort of shit out. I should hope so. Dr. Steinschneider was actually a respected man in his field. He was an expert in pediatrics and was a board-certified pediatrician. Not only that, he also had an MD and a PhD. And not only that, he also had a state-of-the-art pediatric sleep clinic where he could study infants to find evidence that supported his theory of genetic sleep apnea. No one else had that technology to test out a specific theory, so everyone in his field just looked up to this guy. Yeah, I mean, if you got the one guy that's publishing papers and he's got anybody behind him respecting him at all, like most people are just going to be like, yeah, I, I believe him. <laughs> you know yeah and he had the money for the technology exactly. nobody else was doing it so he was like a god yeah so it was right after julie hoyt had died and after molly hoyt was born that the doctor caught wind of the hoyt's tragedy and wanted to work with the family to find the cause of the children's deaths and hopefully prevent molly their fourth child from the same fate molly hoyt was born on march 18th 1970 and very soon afterward went into the arms of Dr. Steinschneider for study. In fact, Molly had been admitted to the doctor's clinic, despite not having any symptoms of sleep apnea. And while there, multiple nurses that worked with Molly had noticed some odd things. They had noticed that Juanita would never hold little Molly unless Molly was handed to her or she was told to hold her. And even then, it was clear that Juanita had no real interest in her daughter. When she did hold little Molly... She held her out and away from her own body as if she was sickened by having to touch her own child. It was obvious to the nurses that Juanita detested her child and wanted nothing to do with her. Ah. There was not a moment that Juanita had showed any real affection toward Molly. She was completely detached from her. 
Now, some would argue that Juanita's behavior toward Molly was due to the immense grief it was suspected that Juanita was going through after losing three children. Some would even say that this was Juanita's way of sort of protecting herself emotionally if Molly was to die as well. But it seemed more likely that she just didn't want to be invested in Molly's life at all. Yeah, like those behaviors they were describing seem like behaviors of disgust or like, Ugh, get this thing away from me. You know, not like emotional boundaries or, or not boundaries, but, you know, like walls. Right. Because walls look like, you know, just sort of not enthusiasm, but holding your kid away from yourself is more than just lack of enthusiasm. Yeah, I, I, I feel like even if a parent was trying to protect themselves emotionally, they would be crying at the thought of what could potentially happen. Like there'd be signs like, oh, my God, I don't want her to die as well. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. She'd be- you know, visually saying these things. I don't, know. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. The nurses even went to Dr. Steinschneider individually to inform him of their observations of Juanita's behavior. But Steinschneider completely brushed their concerns aside. He refused to listen to any of their concerns. Dr. Steinschneider remained deaf-eared even when one of the nurses straight up told him that Juanita would eventually kill little Molly if she was alone with her. He simply laughed her off. So there were other things the nurses noticed. When Tim would visit the clinic to see his daughter and wife, Juanita would become very jealous of little Molly when Tim and the staff gave Molly attention rather than to her. There were even times when Tim would be holding Molly on his lap, but Juanita would come by and remove Molly so that she, Juanita, could sit on Tim's lap. Oh, dude, that's so cringy. Fucking bitch. And I mean, I know we know we both know where it's going, but at the same time, it's just like it's so cringy for like somebody who brought this life into the world to view them in that way. It's like, it's just, yeah, it's disgusting to me. Just as non-matter, like nothing. Yeah, Bro, this lady was just a tragedy waiting to happen, man. We already heard about her family life with all the health issues going on, but listen to this. So back in high school. Oh, shit. She was hella crazy and clingy. Uh Uh-oh. She faked a pregnancy either before the 10th grade or during the 10th grade just before she made that precisely calculated decision to drop out of high school. Whoa. Difficult life decisions. Yikes. Juanita also had no intent on doing anything proactive with her life. She just wanted to stay at home and be a Taurus. <laughs> oh, right. All she wanted was to be surrounded by soft, soothing sounds while she laid back in comfort and luxury. She expected, as all Tauruses do, to be pampered. Now, a quick note on that. That goes completely against another trait of the Taurus, which is being ambitious. So Yeah, yeah it doesn't make much sense, does it? But not only did she want to be a housewife, she also wanted Tim to stay at home with her so she wouldn't be alone. And presumably so he could pamper her, of course. Juanita would literally beg him not to go to work, but he would flatly refuse that shit and go to work because he knew the consequences of not having a job to pay the bills. Yeah, you're out on the dirty streets, just kicking rocks down Hunts Point Ave, hooking a hard right, kicking those stones all the way down East Bay. But you gotta stop off at Oasis to get a small plain cup of basic drip coffee, you know, that's been brewing all day. So you can stoically contemplate the rest of your life while you sit on the sticky curb staring blankly and sipping loudly. Well, that's a little depressing. Yeah, it is. And that is how Wayne Dale came up with the blueprint of this podcast, believe it or not. (laughs) Man, yeah, it's pretty nuts that his mama kicked him out right at peak lockdown. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's tough breaks, bro. Good thing he's in the bathroom sitting down to take a piss right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he'll be in there. He'll be in there a minute. We got some time here to kill. (laughs) So anyway, Tim would go to work, leaving Juanita home alone. 
But Juanita couldn't handle it and would call him over and over and over again at his work, asking him to come home for various bullshit reasons like having to fix a leak in the plumbing or shut the window or something stupid. And she'd complain about her health, which would alarm Tim, naturally. And you know, what are you going to do when your loved one is complaining about their health? Tell them they're full of shit? You know, like, yeah, you're going to have to have some empathy and do what you can for them. But in this situation... It was all about manipulation and control. And as we all know, like, it's one thing for us to, like, look in now and see it. But if you're in the relationship and you're the one around that person, like, you don't know at first. Like, you're just like, are they right. serious or are they? I mean, I hope, I hope so. they're serious. Like, I'm, I'm supposed to trust this person. So little Molly was admitted to the doctor's clinic for observation and study. While there, they ran a battery of tests on her, but there was no real evidence of any sleep apnea. And after three weeks of this, she was sent home with a breathing monitor, which made her the first infant in the United States to use an at-home breathing monitor, if you can breathe it or not. Look at that. But Scott. Oh, no. Two days later, Molly apparently stopped breathing, and Juanita frantically called Dr. Steinschneider's clinic. She told him that she had to resuscitate Molly, but she was conscious. Jeez. The doctor told Juanita to bring Molly back to the clinic for further testing and observation, which she did. It was found that Molly might have had a small cold, but her breathing seemed to be perfectly normal. Regardless, he had her readmitted to the clinic for 24-7 observation, which would last another four weeks. Again, at the end of it, her breathing seemed to be fine, and she was sent home. This only raised a few eyebrows and ignited some further suspicions from the nurses who cared for poor little Molly. They found it odd that these so-called episodes that Molly was having only happened when she was alone with her mother, Juanita. This is when that one nurse told the doctor that Molly was in danger. She said, if you send her home, that lady is going to kill her. Damn, that is chilling. And people should listen. People should listen when people say stuff like that, especially if it's like out of the ordinary for them to claim those things. Like usually this like super chill nurse is like, you know, oh, how's it going? One day she's like, if you send that, them home, you know, like I would be, yeah. I would take that pretty seriously if it was me. Well, yeah, especially if you have a, this, a nurse, she's in a professional capacity and she's telling a doctor who is also a professional, look, this lady is going to kill the child. You would think that as a professional doctor, you would have some concerns. You'd be like, hmm, why do you think this? Exactly. You know, but instead he just fucking laughed at her. I know. Asshole. But little Molly was sent home under stable condition with the breathing monitor again, and things seemed to be just fine. Good. Well, Scott, the next day, little Molly would be deceased. <sighs> Juanita explained that she had placed Molly into her crib and had left the room for just one minute. One minute. But when she returned to the room, Molly was not breathing and was already turning a noticeable blue from lack of oxygen. Hold up. I don't think you'd turn blue that quickly. One minute? Yeah, I don't know, man. From what I could find, it could take roughly three plus minutes for your face to start turning blue from lack of oxygen. So we can assume when she said one minute, maybe she was exaggerating. But it's not out of the realm of possibility for that to happen quicker, especially if it's a tiny newborn, which Molly was roughly, you know, two and a half months old. So sure, sure. Right. But here's where we get a little twist in the story. Oh, I love twists. It's a twist. Why is he a good director? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, I think it's one of those situations where, you know, he had a, a good one. And then after that, it just never quite was as good. And yeah, 
in my experience, hasn't been since. He's like the Nickelback of of movie directors. <laughs> hey, man, well, at least Nickelback has like a secret cult following. That is true. It's just weird. The medical examiner found that Molly was not just slightly blue. She was really, 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 really blue, which instantly ruled out SIDS. Confused, the medical examiner continued to look for other signs of a cause of death and, not finding anything else, he decided that Molly had died from pneumonia. Who is this guy, man? Dr. Rumack? I mean, what's going on here? I don't know, man. It was a strange time. But there was one very assiduous opponent of the medical examiner's finding. A certain Dr. Alfred Steinschneider. Oh, that's right, because he wanted the results to be sleep apnea and not pneumonia, I'm sure. Exactly, man. He was unremitting in his disagreement and challenged the examiner's finding. And ironically, that was a good thing, but still for the wrong reasons. Right, because the examiner got the cause of death wrong to begin with, like way off. And Steinschneider, I guess, knew that? But he also didn't know that Molly was murdered. He was just doing it for his own selfish, you know, research reasons. And we all know that it wasn't sleep apnea, which Steinschneider hoped it was. So, fuck, man, what a weird situation to be involved in. It's like the truth was arrived at, but not because people were actually seeking it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And especially as, like, a medical examiner, like, having to chop up babies' bodies. Like, I don't know how they do it. That's got to be some rough shit. That is, dude. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? We want to know what that is like. To be a medical examiner, that is. And to have to do this kind of work. So if you're a medical examiner, please email us. Let us know. What's it like having to perform autopsies? And what's the difference between the age groups? I mean, this is crazy, right? This is stuff that we don't know. We're, this is outside of our realm of experience, so we want to hear about it. Has it been difficult to perform those kinds of autopsies on babies, for example, like versus adults? Just email us at paranautica at gmail.com. We would like to know. We want to know that shit. So Stein Schneider had just been monitoring little Molly for about 12 hours just before she had died, and she had zero signs or symptoms of pneumonia. That's also true. There was no cough or anything. Yeah, I mean, there was just, like, nothing that would suggest it. So it couldn't have been pneumonia. To Dr. Steinschneider, Molly could only have died from SIDS brought on by sleep apnea, more specifically, pediatric obstructive sleep apnea. While the doctor was working on his paper about his theory that SIDS was a genetic disease passed down through family lineage after the death of little Molly... Juanita had gone out to buy some new clothes, including a dress which she wore for a wild night on the town just two days after burying little Molly. Ugh, so not the signs of a grieving parent, or at least who's supposed to be a grieving parent. We got fucking Casey Anthony. She was, like, partying at clubs right after murdering her daughter. And yes, I'm gonna say, Casey Anthony is hella guilty of murdering her own fucking daughter. I can't believe the jury found her not guilty, dude. That's fucked up. I know. Something will come of it, though eventually yeah right dude she's like came hella rich casey anthony she's fucking hella rich now book deals all sorts of stupid shit no that doesn't all i mean we've seen a lot of people who go up that high fall back down like not too much later so True. well i hope she falls hard we'll see we'll see well guess what scott oh uh oh what little baby noah would be born two months later on may 9th 1971 Dr. Steinschneider was adamant that Noah be brought to the clinic for further testings and observations at the very moment that he be released from the hospital. Whoa, the very moment. Damn, this doctor really wants this kid. And he got him. Almost immediately upon release from the hospital, Noah was brought right over to the sleep apnea clinic and he seemed to be in tip-top shape. Nothing seemed wrong with him, just like his sister. His breathing was absolutely perfect. There was nothing obstructing his airways. There was no brain problem causing him to forget to breathe. 
He was a hella healthy child, one of the healthiest babies you'd ever meet. The clinic had a new crew of nurses on staff, and a handful of them were to look after the little boy. But they, too, noticed Juanita being strange. Juanita was obviously being very distant from her newborn. She didn't want to hold him, let alone be next to him. She was also very jealous of Tim's attention toward Noah. She wanted Tim to pay attention to her and only her. These godforsaken children just keep getting in the way of her perfect slothful life with a clueless husband. Ah, geez, yeah, I guess. That's uh, that's pretty crazy and disturbing. Back at the clinic, just like the last batch of nurses, this new batch of nurses felt like Noah might be endangered by Juanita, and they even warned Dr. Steinschneider as much. What do you want to take a guess at what he does, Scott? You should really take a guess. I'm guessing that the Dr. Steinschneider called the Child Protective Services, if they existed at the time, and he protected Noah from Juanita's evil, murderous ways. Nope. That's not even close. Oh, man. Dr. Steinschneider simply scoffed at their concerns, and he said, This, this, an issue of SIDS, this is. It's an issue of sleep apnea and SIDS. This boy will die from SIDS and sleep apnea, not by being murdered by his own mother. That's preposterous to even suggest. This is SIDS, lady. SIDS! And sleep apnea. Do you get it? Lady, do you get it, lady? SIDS, it's just, it's SIDS, goddammit, and sleep apnea. Everybody knows. Fucking really <laughs> is about his own research. Oh, man. Noah was as healthy as a healthy young child could be, and he was released from the clinic one month later. But guess what, Scott? Oh, man, I'm tired of guessing, bro. I'm always <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Three days after he was discharged from the clinic... Juanita would say that she found him unresponsive and not breathing, so she brought him back to the clinic. Ugh, so terrible. Little Noah was readmitted to the clinic and stayed for observation for nearly six weeks. And I'm sure he was just a fine and healthy child probably the whole time, right? Yeah, Noah was never sick, just like the other four children. None of them were sick. So Noah is released, and they head back home. But just like Molly, only one day after his discharge from the clinic... He stopped breathing while at home and would die. He would be the fifth child to have died while being alone with Juanita Hoyt. I mean, the fact that it's taken this long and no one has done anything about this yet is insane to me. Yeah, so at this point, it's been like six years. Yeah. So so six years, it's just it's five children die. No one has even like investigated. It's crazy. Other than the nurses who are like, this lady's well, the nurses, a whack yeah, job. Yeah, the nurses are only just like essentially gossiping because they're not like pushing very hard. Yeah. You know? Yep. Thanks to Dr. Steinschneider's theory that sudden infant death syndrome was a genetic disease that was passed down by the parent, Tim Hoyt, the father of all five now deceased children, was convinced that his genetics were responsible for this. And so he would go get an immediate vasectomy out of fear that he would only bring more children into the world that would suffer the same fate as his other four children. Oof, man. I mean, this was already getting dark, but now it's getting, like, even worse. Like, this man thinks it's him. Yeah, shit's coming to a head, too. And yet, no serious suspicion fell upon Juanita. Again, everyone just felt so completely sorry for the couple who were plagued with horrible luck in raising a child to adolescence. And with Tim all snipped and shooting blanks from now on, the pair wouldn't have to worry about pregnancy. But they still wanted to have children, probably now more than ever. 
This is when they decided that they should adopt a child. Dr. Steinschneider's theory that the issue was all genetic was gaining a lot of ground within both the medical field and the public opinion. And Tim reasoned that if they adopted a child, they could bypass all that genetic stuff and be able to finally raise a child as they had always wanted. It would be only one week after Noah's death that they decided to adopt a baby boy named Scott. And this is really interesting to me here. So they adopted him with a six-month trial period to see if they actually wanted him. Now, I'm no expert in these things about adoption, but I wasn't aware that you could test out the child for a period of time before you adopted them. Yeah, in my experience, that's not really the case. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was like a child that was in a foster care situation and you come around and you spend some time with the foster child and, you know, you're having like back discussions with the foster person like, hey, you know, we're thinking about adopting this kid. You know, we really like spending time with him. Uh, but as far as like taking a baby on for a while and then like maybe giving it back, like you probably shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be adopting if that's the case. That's such a weird thing, man. The thing is though, it just so happened that they didn't like poor little Scott. Oh. And so they promptly returned him to the adoption agency. It was more of Juanita's idea than Tim's, interestingly. In fact, Juanita had actually started to see a psychiatrist during this time of Scott's adoption and she had told the psychiatrist that she thought she might physically harm little Scott. Whoa. Yeah, I can believe that shit. She also admitted to having a suicidal ideation and was prescribed an anti-anxiety medication and another medication for her depression. Huge red flag here. Yeah. I mean, like, damn. Now on meds and wanting a child more than ever, the pair went back to the adoption agency and tried out another boy named Jay. Jay seemed to be a much better fit for the couple, and he settled in nicely. In fact, Jay would actually live to see adulthood. No way. Yeah, something those of us from the outside looking in would never have expected. No, not in a million years. Tim was no longer working, and so now he could stay at home with Juanita, something that Juanita had always wanted since the day they started dating back in high school. And this meant that he could be hands-on on raising little Jay with Juanita. Interestingly... And to the shock of everyone in Richford, New York, and the surrounding reach of the media, Jay never experienced any health problems like at all, which gave both reassurance to the public that Juanita was not the culprit behind the deaths of her previous five children, and it heavily supported Dr. Steinschneider's theory that SIDS was a genetic predisposition, which was a complete disaster. And it still made that dickhole a rich fuck, and he was hella respected. That's insane, man. It just like all worked out for him. Like he just like cashed in on this whole situation unknowingly, but still. Well, it was at this point in time, I believe in 1971 or 1972, that Juanita would be between 24 and 26 years old with Tim being around 30. So Juanita wasn't doing too well herself. She would suffer from medical issues such as heart murmurs, high blood pressure, horrible eyesight, trouble breathing diabetes, arthritis, osteoporosis, and later on pancreatic cancer, Whoa. and who knows what else. Have you seen Blue Waffles? Did David Carradine, Michael Hutchins, Kevin Gilbert, Michael Loudon, Hidato Matsumoto, Vaughn Bodie, Reverend Gary Aldridge, Albert Decker, and Stephen Milligan all die from autoerotic asphyxiation? Oh, uh, well, let's see. This is David Carradine, Michael Hutchins, Kevin Gilbert, Michael Decker. 
Matsumoto. Yeah, yeah, they they did actually. Uh, all right then. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen the infamous picture that's plastered all over the internet that's called Blue Waffle, go check it out. Oh yeah, yeah, go check that out for sure. You'll love it. Yeah, well, love it or not, I gotta break the news to those who don't know. Hold on, hold on, hold on. If you're listening and you haven't seen that picture, go look at that picture real quick right now. We'll pause for a second here and wait. Hurry up, go look at the picture. Go, 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 go. All right. You think that's enough time? Uh, let's give it five more seconds. All right, all right, all right. And, uh, yeah, Blue Waffle. Wonderful sight to see. Yeah, at least once, because now I hate to break it to all of you out there who have seen this and believed it to be a real disease. Well, apparently it's not real. Oh. It's, it's been debunked over and over by prominent doctors. Dr. Anita Ravi, New Jersey, even confirmed that this alleged Blue Waffle disease is not real in 2017. During a speech, which is actually posted on the Annals of Internal Medicine website. So, sorry folks. Hey man, you know what? The truth on that mystery had to come out and we did our part. The truth about that needed to come out indeed. So what's up with Steinschneider, by the way? Well, Dr. Steinschneider continued with his paper on SIDS and sleep apnea and highlighted the highly unusual case of the Hoyt family. In his paper, he dedicated a lot of the print to the last two children of the Hoyt family, uh, Molly and Noah, and really used the tragedy in his favor to support his work. And he would publish his paper in 1972, and this in turn created a massive boost in sales of at-home breathing monitors, which raked in at least $9 million straight into his personal bank account. Oof. And so for the next eight years or so, the town of Richford, New York, and the world at large would continue to exist as usual with the memory of the five dead Hoyt children fading out into the noise of all that other shit that was happening through the mid to late 1970s. And there was a lot. Oh, fuck, man. There was more than a lot going on in the late 1970s. Brosafina. Let me just bring some remembrance to that old time period. Yeah, sure. 1975, the U.S. pulls out of Vietnam, and the U.S. never pulls out, <laughs> nor does it use lubrication when it puts in. Oh, fuck. The New York City bond crisis. I didn't even want to get into it. 1976, the hard-shelled Mr. Peanut, or the otherwise known as Peanut Farmer, or you might remember him as the Peanut President. Yes, the great Jimmy Carter was elected president, one of the best of his caliber. Did you know that he was the first president to be born in a hospital? What? Did you know that? No. The 39th president of the United States was the first president to be born in an actual hospital. Really? Yeah, he was born in 1924 in a hospital, a real one. Crazy <laughs> stuff. He also had a dog named Grits. Oh, wow, that's incredible. Grits. Yeah, man. And he was from Georgia, believe it or not. I do believe that. 1977, Elvis was found dead at the age of 42. Or was he? Probably, because get this, not too long before he was found dead, a group of Scientologists tried to recruit him, but he turned them down, and Elvis later said of it, Oh, to hell with those people. There's no way I'll ever get involved with that son of a bitch group. All I want is my money. All I want... Oh, here's my money, darling. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's not the first time they've ever had a finger or two pointed at them for murder and all sorts of other weird crimes, but nothing ever seems to happen to them. No, man, they're too powerful. And their entire origin story is just so fucking stupid. Their whole rise to achieve religious status and just be a legal church, which embezzles millions and millions of dollars. Oh, man, Scientology. I have my opinions, but... Also in 1977... Roy Sullivan, struck by lightning for the seventh time. Holy and shit. the U.S. Senate hearings are held on the so-called conspiracy of MKUltra. 1978, the first test tube baby Lewis Brown was born. 
The Jonestown mass killing and mass suicide took place in Guyana. Frederick Valentich, an Australian pilot, went missing, along with his single-engine Cessna 182 aircraft he was flying solo, over an area of South Australia called Bass Strait on a 125-mile journey. Right before he lost all radio contact with Melbourne Flight Service, he had radioed them to inform them that an unidentified aircraft was following him, but this craft was not picked up by either's radar. He then told them that the craft was flying at high speeds at different angles, and he thought that its pilot might be toying with him. He said then it started to orbit above him as he flew his own aircraft at high speeds, and he could see that it had a shiny metallic surface with a green light on it. He then radioed in to let them know that he was having engine problems. When asked to identify the strange craft, all he could say was, it's not an aircraft, before the transmission was lost. Later, the air traffic controller who was speaking with him said that the transmission sounded like there was a metallic scraping sound before all the contact was lost entirely. That is really interesting, man. Was anything ever found? There was an engine cowl flap that washed ashore on Flinders Island five years after losing contact with him, but it couldn't definitively be identified as belonging to the Cessna that he was flying at the time. I can, however, definitively identify a different cowl flap. (laughs) That's a bit of a non sequitur, so we'll just move on with that and go right on with the story. And of course, this event, uh, it was chalked up to Frederick mistaking Venus on the horizon uh, as a runway to land on, or... Yeah, exactly. It was that and a combination of swamp gas. Ah, yep, yep. Now, 1979, the first documented case of a human being, you know, those pesky, unpredictable bipedal things, was killed by a robot, of all things. Holy shit. Apparently, this took place at Ford Motors Plant in Flat Rock, Michigan. Robert Williams was killed instantly after being crushed by a five-story robot arm built to retrieve parts from raid storage shelves. He climbed up after the system failed, but once he was up there, the system started working again and instantly crushed him. Damn. Also in 1979, Etan Patz was the first missing child to have their picture printed on a milk carton. It would later be found that Etan was kidnapped and murdered on the same day, and it wouldn't be until 2012 when a man named Pedro Hernandez would be caught for that crime. He was 18 years old when he committed the murder. Also, in 1979, Georgia Guidestones were erected. These consist of six large granite slabs, which are carved with instructions on how to build a better society after an apocalypse happens. It has eight different languages carved into the stone slabs that stand upright. I really want to go check that shit out, man, Georgia Guidestones. And so I have this map up right now, and looking at the distance from us, it's about 2,400 miles. Uh, We could get there in a day and a half. We could probably get there in a day and a quarter if you just hopped on my back and I ran us the whole way. You are Speedy Gonzalez. So this last one from 1979, because I know we have to move along here with the story, but apparently a woman named Elvita Adams tried to commit suicide by jumping from the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. And when she jumped, the wind was so powerful that it pushed her right back into a different window, which ultimately saved her life. Wow. And... I doubt she'll ever try that parkour trick again. It's just what she loves to do. Well, I can say that is more incredible than Jimmy Carter having a dog named Grits, because (laughs) that right there is more than remarkable than a dog that was given a name. Well, I disagree. Dagnabbit. Dagnabbit, it's true. All right, well, moving on. Dr. Steinschneider published his paper, and it received a great deal of positive feedback. At first, and there was controversy. Other researchers found themselves criticizing his work more than praising it, and they had even found that he had falsified some of his data. Can you believe it? And if you falsify some of the data, you make the rest of the data obsolete. Some of these other researchers even brought up the fact that it was nearly impossible, if not entirely impossible, to tell the differences between an authentic SIDS case and death by smothering. And there were other dissenters of this published paper. 
Many of them being in the same field of work as he was, pediatrics. And there were others, of course, some of them being local police officers and detectives, and others being in other areas of the medical field, such as Dr. Linda Norton, a forensic pathologist from Dallas, Texas, and one of the harshest critics of Dr. Steinschneider. Dr. Linda Norton was well aware of the deaths of the five Hoyt children, as it had been an intriguing story amongst many in the medical field. She herself had her own doubts about the official story, and she didn't agree with much of what Dr. Steinschneider had published in his academic paper. But there wasn't much that she could do about her lingering suspicions except to keep them shelved somewhere deep in the brain. But it was her professional opinion that the doctor's study was not evidence of SIDS being genetic, but instead it was a clear case of a serial killer mother who specifically targeted her biological children. Damn! That's a very radical difference than uh, I know <laughs> what he's saying. And he's, I mean, could you imagine like somebody standing up at a conference and be like, oh, sir, I disagree with you. And I'd like to offer a couple of points. Yeah. To what I think may have happened here, you know, and just like how crazy of a turn that is. But I mean, she's right, though. That's the that's the thing. So Dr. Norton, she was supposed to be an expert witness in another murder case in upstate uh, New York. And this involved a man named Stephen Vandersleeze, who was said to have killed his three children for an insurance payout. That was said to be a case of SIDS as well. And he would eventually be convicted of murdering his children for insurance payout. Damn, that is cold. So let's back up a little bit. In the early 1980s, William Bill Bill Fitzpatrick was a young assistant district attorney in upstate New York investigating Stephen Vandersleeze. He would be introduced to a woman named Dr. Linda Norton. Linda was very familiar with Steinschneider's groundbreaking article, but William Bill Bill Fitzpatrick was not. And so our girl Linda Norton thought that William Bill Bill Fitzpatrick should read the groundbreaking article and find out for himself if there's anything useful, let alone factual in it. That seems like a good idea. Linda would hand the man the article for him to read. And when she did so, she also left off by saying, You may decide that you have a serial killer here. And we actually don't know if that's what Linda sounded like, but... Yeah, that's our best guess at the moment. <laughs> so, Linda, if you're listening and you're a fan, please forgive us. Yeah, we mean no harm. And, Linda, if you're not a fan yet, you will be one by the end. <laughs> and if not, then could you please be one? Please? Like, maybe now? So, old William Bill Bill Fitzpatrick read the paper. He was taken aback but found his bearings, and then he uncovered the identities of the Hoyt children. And by 1992, William Bill Bill was the new district attorney for Onondaga County, and he quickly located the Hoyt's new location near Tioga County, also in New York. He would meet up with a partner, Robert Simpson, and they would go over medical records and other records that they could get their hands on, and would ultimately both come up with the same conclusion. Juanita Hoyt had most likely murdered all of her five children. He also sent records to another forensic pathologist, Michael Baden, and asked him to review it immediately. And in due time, he would indeed come back to tell William Bill Bill that he concluded that each baby was, in fact, murdered. Oh, man. Well, imagine that. By the time they gathered enough evidence to bring charges against Juanita Hoyt, it would be 1994, and they had devised a plan to arrest the now 52-year-old woman. As she was at the post office doing her thing, someone she knew happened to be a New York State trooper with whom she was well acquainted, a certain Mr. Bobby Bleck. Bobby Bleck? What a name. He had asked her to help him with some research that he was doing on sudden infant death syndrome, and Juanita couldn't be happier to help. Juanita was asked to accompany him to a police station to assist him, 
And while there, two other police officers came over to join in, and all three of them started to discuss SIDS. Those officers were investigators Susan Mulvey and Robert Courtright. The three officers began asking specific questions about SIDS, and in about two hours into the ordeal, they got her to confess to her crimes of killing her five children, and she would be arrested. Her defense said that Juanita suffered from dependent and avoidant personality disorders, which made her more vulnerable when it came to be questioned by the police. He was saying that she was essentially coerced into making her confession. Well, that's not unheard of, but do continue. Yeah, so there was even a psychiatrist that was hired by the prosecution against Juanita who said that they believed the police had certainly coerced Juanita to confess. What? Damn. Yeah, man, crazy, right? So her husband, Tim, was by her side, as well as their son, Jay, who was fully backing her up, and many of their friends and neighbors were there, all rallying in her defense. And Tim was quoted as saying, She was used like an old tire. I love her. She shouldn't be here. The system sucks. Man, Tim, that's really, he's just uh, a flame of passion, you know? Down and out, man. And we don't know if that's what Tim sounds like. Oh, true. Yes. By the way, (laughs) disclaimer. But despite all of that, Juanita Ethel Nixon Hoyt was convicted of murdering her five children in April of 1995. On September 11th, 1995, Tioga County Judge Vincent Squaglia, the old gunslinger himself, sentenced her to 75 years in prison, 15 years for each child she ruthlessly murdered. And once she was arrested, there was a lot of talk that this was a case of Munchausen by proxy, which has been accepted by some in the psychiatric community, but rejected by others. And Scott, why don't you tell the listeners about Munchausen by proxy? Munchausen is a mental condition in which a person repeatedly seeks medical attention for another person for symptoms that are falsified, exaggerated, or deliberately induced, or self-inflicted physical symptoms. It was named after the 18th century German baron who told astonishing stories. The issue here, though, is that she didn't kill her children to get attention. With all of the evidence being sifted through and through, the general understanding is that Juanita Hoyt did not kill her children to get public sentiment. She killed them because, as she put it, she didn't like hearing them cry. The woman did make both a verbal confession and a later written confession, which was used at her trial. Now, let's take a look at some of those highlights. When Juanita was asked about what had happened to her first son who had died, little Eric, She replied, He was crying at the time and I wanted him to stop. I held a pillow. It might have been a sofa throw pillow over his face while I was sitting on the couch. I don't remember if he struggled or not, but he did bleed from the mouth and nose. When asked about her first daughter's death, little Julie, she said, I held her nose and mouth into my shoulder until she stopped struggling. When asked about her second son, little James, she said, I was in the bathroom getting dressed, and he wanted to come in. He came in, and I made him go out. He started crying, Mommy. I wanted him to stop crying for me, so I used a bath towel to smother him. When questioned on what she did to little Molly when she died, Juanita said, She was just home from the hospital overnight and was crying in her crib. I used a pillow that was in the crib to smother her. After she was dead, I called Mom Hoyt and Dr. Steinschneider. And finally, when asked about little Noah, she responded with, I held a baby pillow over his face until he was dead. Then I called for Mom Hoyt and Dr. Steinschneider. I remember it was a hot day in July. 
In a verbal discussion with state troopers earlier on, when they first approached her in 1994, she is quoted as saying, I could not stand the crying. It was the thing that caused me to kill all of them because I didn't know what to do for them. I don't know, man. It's easy to just sit back and accept that that is why she killed them. But to kill five children over a period of a handful of years because she didn't know what to do for them when they cried is a shit poor excuse. I mean, I don't know what people were expecting because she was clearly just like not mentally there, you know? Yeah. And Juanita would later say, I didn't want them to die. I wanted them to quiet down. I mean, yes, in, on the one hand, she's being honest, but she's being as honest as a crazy person can be, you know? Doesn't mean it's the real reason. The real reason is that she's crazy. Yeah, only, need, only she knows the real reason. I think she was just, she liked killing babies. Yeah. She was jealous of attention. Yeah. But to investigators and slews alike, it appeared that Juanita had developed a taste for killing. And like other serial killers, outsmarting the authorities and everyone around them, the secret must have given her a hard-on that could cut glass. Oh, well, they should have tried to prove that. That would have been another interesting uh, little side investigation. Not even a full three years into serving her sentence at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women, on August 13th, 1998, the serial infanticidist, or the serial killer of infants, her own infants, she would succumb to a prolonged and painful death caused by pancreatic cancer. Man, first of all, Good, but you know what else 1998 had going for it? What's that? Well, if you didn't know, David Bowie released his own internet provider called BowieNet. Did you know that? The subscribers were offered very exclusive content and a personalized BowieNet email. I want one. Well, that's too bad, man, because it was shut down in 2006. Here's this next one. AOL 4.0 was launched. Oh, boy, great email security, but really, they should have gone to broadband. Yeah, well, it's too fucking bad, man, because they didn't. You know, you can still use AOL. You can just download it onto pretty much any system if it's newer than Windows 7. I might have to switch back, you know, get that nostalgia. But 1998 was also the year that Pedro Lopez, arguably one of the most prolific serial killers of the 20th century, was released from an Ecuadorian prison after serving 14 years for good behavior. That was two years earlier than what his maximum sentence would have been, which is 16 years. So even if he wasn't let out early, he was still getting out in just a couple of years. He killed a lot of people, mostly young children, while drifting around the northwestern part of South America. His victim count is 110 officially, but it's thought that he could have killed more than uh, 350 yeah. children. Yeah, I know. But the really crazy part about it is that nobody knows where he went after he was released. He just like disappeared in 1998. Right. People believe he went on to kill again, which is probably true. That, or people were waiting for his release and tracked him down and murdered him and he just disappeared. Yeah, I mean, that's more likely. So how did this all turn out for Dr. Steinschneider? His paper was widely criticized and discredited after Anita Hoyt's trial was at its closure. Uh, there were numerous other studies being conducted on SIDS and reports were coming out saying that placing infants on their backs to sleep actually decreased SIDS by up to 50%. And uh, that was contrary to what old Steinschneider was trying to put out there. And these results were also suppressed in the United States by the American SIDS Foundation, you know, the uh, foundation that was headed by its president, Dr. Steinschneider. Well, imagine that. Yeah. And he would continue to run the American SIDS Institute until 1998, but continue to be active as a board member until 2016. Despite all his erroneous research, he was still a respected turd. At the 25th year anniversary of Steinschneider's paper, because there's an anniversary for it, 
The editor of the reputable medical journal that published his paper, Dr. Gerald Lucy, wrote the following, quote, we should never have published this paper, end quote. <laughs> At least someone came out and said it. Dr. Steinschneider never stopped defending his paper and advocated for his position until the very end. He even testified on behalf of Juanita Hoyt during her trial, but it was unsuccessful. To answer your question, though, nothing happened to Dr. Steinschneider. He went on to continue being the head of the institution and raking in millions of dollars in sales of breathing devices. Of course he did. I mean, he just got money blind and didn't care about anything else. Yeah, I mean, he was caught falsifying his records. Oh, so yeah. what the fuck, man? Yeah, so that is a story of serial killer Juanita Hoyt and the murders of her five children. Very crazy story. Yeah, that all was extremely messed up. But I did get this email from a listener here. Oh, shit. Well, let's hear it. So this comes to us from Sade T out of Tecumseh, Nebraska. Wasn't Tecumseh the name of that whale that everyone was juicing in their underwear for a while until it died? No, that was Tillicum. Ah. Tillicum. Oh. And he actually died on January 6th. Now, was he also an undercover cop dressed as Antifa at the Capitol? <laughs> Different January 6th. Ah. But anyways, Sade T says, Hey guys, just thought I'd shoot off an email and let you know that I'm enjoying your podcast. Your stories are great and your humor seriously adds to it. I'll make one suggestion. You should do a story on Charles Starkweather, who went on a killing spree with his teenage girlfriend in Nebraska Wyoming, and Wyoming in the 1950s. It's a chilling story, and I think you guys would do a great job with it. That's all. Take care and keep up with the great work. Oh, thanks, Sade T. Yeah, you know, Charles Starkweather looks like Frankenstein's monster from Mary Shelley's groundbreaking work, Frankenstein. Yeah, I looked at the guy, and you're right. Look at that freaking head. Well, well, we'll put that in the book, Sade T. Thank you for the suggestion. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, all right, man. Is that it? Yeah, so ladies and gentlemen, please, if you haven't already, please click that subscribe button and turn on the notifications so you can be notified when our next episode comes out and drops like it's hot. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Paranautica. And check us out on Facebook. Until next time, go to wherever people are congregating and scream from the top of your lungs that it is imperative that everyone listen to the Paranautica podcast. Then go from one person to the next, look them in the eye, and blink hard at least three times, and then whisper aloud, the Paranautica podcast. It's <laughs> a fucking good idea. It is. And then next week, we can all meet back up here for another episode. How about that? That's fucking perfect. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Oh.